0: you're listening to the gamesindustry.biz podcast. I'm Rebecca Valentine and I'm joined this week by
1: Matt Andrahan. Brendan Sinclair. Hayden Taylor.
0: We're here as always to talk about the latest gaming industry news and headlines starting with unions. Uh, Pretty much a constant in industry conversation in the last few years but made a few headlines this last week uh, with both Take-Two CEO Strauss Zelnick and U.S. presidential candidate and Senator Bernie Sanders weighing in. Let's start with Sanders, maybe, because I think his comments were the lighter of the two. I am... He, he basically tweeted and expressed support for specifically games industry unionization, which I am always surprised when any when any government official of any kind, specifically in the U.S., weighs in on games industry issues at all. It's, it's just interesting when they notice them.
2: I wouldn't really say he's, like, weighing in. Like, he didn't really have much to say other than, like, we should unionize, which coming coming from Bernie Sanders is, is hardly a surprise. Although <laughs> although it, it was reassuring, like you say, that like you don't see politicians, uh, especially in the US, ever really ever really uh, kind of showing any much interest in this area. So it was welcome, I guess, to at least have somebody taking notice in a more positive way. But yeah, I, it didn't feel, it wasn't particularly substantial.
3: I mean, what, what was it in response to? Because I think there was a piece maybe in Time or Fortune had a headline like, video games are made on like the broken backs of his workers or whatever. And that, that kind of like, that was maybe published a few days before Sam was contributing. And I know he, he he shouted out to Game Workers Unite as well, and I think they were involved with kind of on the background of that piece too. What, what, what was it that stirred his attention?
0: Yeah, so it was a piece in time, uh, the it. headlines video game creators are burned out and desperate for change, every game you like is built on the backs of workers. He, he shared that, and his tweet was, the video game industry made 43 billion in revenue last year, the workers responsible for that profit deserve to collectively bargain as part of a union, I'm glad to see unions like uh, IATSC and the broader Game Workers Unite movement organizing such workers. That was his tweet.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, as, as, as Europeans, well, not much longer, but you know, ostensibly Europeans, <laughs> we we we're, we're sort of like we're riot observers but like how does it feel to well to you rebecca being being in north america and then someone who could effectively vote for this man do you, do you like his stance do you what 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 do you make of it
0: i i mean i think the us ha- like in terms of voting for a presidential candidate i think I'm really excited that, like I said, that somebody noticed the games industry at all and that they had generally a, a positive thing to say. Like, they're they're not, you know, coming in and decry- yelling about violence in video games or, you know, coming in with something like that. Like, like he's coming in and supporting something that's generally a positive movement. Um, I, I don't think it's going to necessarily sway who I end up voting for in the end just because the U.S. has so many dang issues happening right now that... There are a million other problems we have to solve, but I'm, I'm glad that this is, this is a good stance. It, it, it makes me feel more positive about Bernie, not that I felt unpositive about him before. Um, So yeah, it's, it's cool. I, I would love to see more candidates say something about this in general.
1: I think it's really interesting how perceptions of unions have, have changed in, uh, North America and the United States, um, in the last couple of decades, like, in the 90s, I was, I was, you know, growing up in the U.S., and uh, in the Chicago area, there were, there were unions for grocery store baggers and film projectionists, and, like, the, the general perception was like, okay, well, these unions are, you know, outdated. Um, they are un, unrealistic. I guess. Like the um the projectionist union at the theater I used to work for. They to run eight screens, they were like getting two full time projectionists with college degrees, um, like engineering degrees and paying them twenty-five dollars an hour minimum or something like that. And then when there was a strike, um they took the popcorn jockeys from behind the thing, making, you know, five five and a quarter an hour. And had them run the projection booth, and you kind of didn't really notice too much of a difference depending on the popcorn jockey in question, uh, and and that you know like uh, that seemed like maybe maybe things were a little out of whack there, but just the the what's gone on in the the ensuing decades, just the how obvious it has become that uh, that people aren't getting by on, on you know, their, their minimum wage or, or slightly better uh, salaries, how, how many companies are just sort of exploiting their workforce. Like I, I think that environment is a heck of a lot more conducive to organization of, of labor and that it's happening in the games industry is not unique to the games industry at all. But I do think it's a it's a reaction to just sort of general atmosphere, especially in in the U.S. In, in the last couple decades.
0: It's interesting that you you are talking about how it's become a little more obvious over you know the last few decades in the U.S. as to What might motivate people to unionize? Because in other unionization news this week, we have uh, Take-Two CEO Strauss Zelnick um, in an interview with you, Brendan, saying, uh, among a a longer quote, saying that uh, it's hard to imagine what would motivate that crew, meaning uh, the U.S. games industry, to unionize. Um, Do you mind going into a little bit of detail about that interview?
1: Yeah. So the the interview was um, sort of E3 corporate state of the company interview. So we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. And I asked him about unions, just because I asked a number of companies about it, a number of people, because I just think there's value in getting their their general statement on the record about it, rather than just like assuming what their position is. When there's a statement, you can point to it later on. People can pick it apart, call it ridiculous, whatever. Um, and so, like his his statement was: uh, unions tend to develop when labor relations are not typically non-existent and typically unions have been most beneficial when there were more workers than there were jobs and where the jobs were low paying jobs. We have fewer workers than we have jobs and they're high paying jobs. And then he says that there are 220,000 people in the U S gaming industry right now, and they make hundred thousand dollars on average. And that was what we put in the, in the article in quotes and people seized on that. And they kind of went ballistic about it, um, and they they questioned like, okay, well these these numbers are you know they clearly don't match up with a whole lot of people's personal experiences in the games industry, and uh, they they wanted a source for it. I initially took the numbers as like sort of Zelnick ballparking things like the the specific salary one and I've heard salary ranges all over the map our own our own survey last year I think had about $60,000 a year and then if you look on some job hunting sites uh the the positions that they've been posting for their averages come out to like $110,000 a year it's over the map but uh we we tracked down the the thing he actually was citing which was a uh, Entertainment Software Association report from last year on the economic contributions of the games industry, and they had a figure of ninety-seven thousand dollars a year for the average U.S. developer, and that was actually pulled from a uh, twenty-fourteen game developer research Gamasutra salary survey that they used to do every year at GDC, uh, where you know a little over a thousand respondents uh, to this to the survey of developers combined to have like an average salary in the u.s of uh eighty three thousand dollars and then the esa took that and then took government figures on like employer contributions for retirement funds and insurance and things like that and then added that into the eighty three thousand figure like the figure was sixteen point eight percent so like okay well well, we're going to take that average of what employers chip in above and beyond the wages and salaries, combine them and then say average compensation for, for developers in the U S in 2013, which was, you know, when that, that game developer data was pulled from, uh, is 97,000. So like we updated the article with, um, the, the details about where the number was coming from. Uh, and it probably would have been better to put that in there in the first place But I don't think it really changes um, anything because all of these numbers have have caveats to them, you know? Like, who, who replied to that game developer survey? It was only covering salaries, so it doesn't include contractors, which the industry has employed a ton of. Uh, especially in things like QA positions where, you know, we talked to nether realm people um, recently and, and they were, you know, making minimum wage just about uh, in recent years. So like, yeah, you, we can say that he was citing something now, but that doesn't, that doesn't make it okay for anyone. Right. Like it just, now we know what he's pulling from, but all those numbers are, are still debatable, questionable, need to be put in a different kind of context here. And the heart of his message, game developers are well compensated so it will be difficult to organize them, is the same as it was regardless. Like people who whose personal experiences don't line up with that, and there are tons of those, are going to be angry about it and... The the people whose experiences really do line up with that, those who are making a hundred thousand or more, you know, do they have motivation to unionize? If they do unionize, would they want those those benefits of the organization to to cover contractors, QA employees, people who are not as well off as them? I, I think those are legitimate questions. I, I'm not sure well, I mean, agree with Zelnic, but
3: well, but then was. In what sense? I mean, so, but I mean, yeah, the not agreeing and the being able to acknowledge it's a legitimate question seems to be what was missing to the general response to that comment, which is to say, everybody got massively hung up on the validity of a single number when actually you can swap that number out with a different number, eighty thousand, seventy-five thousand, which is still. You know forgive me, I don't know what the the average annual wage in the us is, but I would imagine that eighty thousand is still fairly comfortably above it, right across the whole workforce. That would still be a fairly well paid industry. His point was not one hundred thousand dollars. His point was, as you said, Brendan, people in the games industry are well compensated right on average, and it's also important not to leave out the on average part because he's also not saying there's nobody in the games industry that doesn't get badly paid. That's not his point either. What is his point, actually, I think is, I mean, it's an interview. He's not giving the most nuanced way of phrasing that. I'm sure if you were having, you know, a a more private conversation where you could really dig into it and there was no time pressure and stuff, he could articulate himself a bit more clearly. But an interview is an interview. It's 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 an abstracted way of talking to somebody where they don't always get to offer every single bit of detail. But it, it struck me when I read it, and this is before the Twitter fallout, but what he was saying is exactly what you just articulated, Brennan, which is that there are some people in the industry that are very well compensated indeed. And the whole thing with the unions and the whole issue with the unions is that it's about solidarity with people that are not as well off as you are and sometimes accepting that you're going to go without because they're going without. And that is a difficult thing just by very human nature. And it's not really anything to do with who got what stat from where, which is really entirely what the Twitter conversation seemed to, to devolve into. Uh, fairly fairly quickly.
2: Also, I think like the the points he's making about, you know, that the games industry isn't particularly motivated to unionize. Even if that figure is lower, I still think it it does apply to a certain extent. Obviously, there's a lot there's a lot of problems in the industry with crunch and things like that. But if you if you look at the unions that have cropped up in recent years, the the drivers that have like motivated these unions to form, you know, they're things like Uber drivers and Deliveroo riders and stuff like that. These are people who have who are basically uh, contractors who work full-time and get below the minimum wage. They get no benefits whatsoever. And, you know, we've seen in the UK, like, that's the, the in, I think it's like the Independent Workers' Union, which is what the Games Workers' Unite is part of here in the UK. You know, that came out to support these these sort of, uh, these gig economy workers. And that's, that's what unions have always typically done throughout history, is they come up when there is, like, a real desperate need for them. And that's not to say there isn't a need for unions, but I think that that Zelnick's point is like, the games industry isn't that, like, it may have its problems, but it's not, it's not at that level of sort of desperate need, where people are, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, it's, I suppose it depends who you speak to, but yeah, I, I, I know when, like, Telltale went under, you know, people were living in their cars and things like that, and it was a really, really bad scene, but that's, that's less the rule and more the exception, I feel, for, for a lot of the games industry, but feel free to disagree
0: um i i think the more kind of astonishing line out of this and the one that i'm surprised more people didn't see on as opposed to or sees on as opposed to the numerical figure is just the line it's hard to imagine what would motivate that crew to unionize because pay isn't the only reason why people unionize right like yeah it maybe maybe people are compensated well in the games industry um But there's still plenty of other reasons to be frustrated with your job, even if it pays well. I mean, we've been having this whole conversation about crunch, just for one example, for the last year. And I know, again, I know that's not like the rule across the games industry. We have, you know, our our thing every year with the best places to work awards. There's plenty of great places to work in the industry. But like Matt said, the people who are in good positions can act in solidarity with the people who are not. And it seems just from what we've seen in the last year, that there are a significant amount of people in the games industry, like a meaningful amount, who, whether they're paid well or not, are in situations where maybe crunch is an issue, maybe job security is an issue, maybe there's a lot of contract workers that are in situations that are just really not great. Um, And I I think that it's hard to imagine what would motivate people to unionize is just sort of a... A, a, a strange kind of offhand way to dismiss that conversation. I mean, I I don't expect him to have like this really, again, it's like an E3 interview about the general state of the company. I don't expect him to have this really thought out, concerned, considerate response um, in this particular situation. But I, I'm surprised more people didn't seize on that particular line, I guess.
1: Zelnick's also coming from a, like a Hollywood background. He, he used to be president of 20th Century Fox, if I remember right. And... There are a lot of unions in in Hollywood, and a lot of those people make a lot of money, but like that doesn 't mean that doesn 't mean that they don 't want or need unions. it just means that there are a lot of other things that like you know they they collectively bargaining them uh, they see value in in the protections that that gives them and the leverage that that gives them. Uh, against companies and and uh influential executives who in the past have been shown to be, you know, they were they before the unions in Hollywood, they were basically exploiting the 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 talent and the crew. And like is this what we've seen in the games industry really all that different in that sense? So it 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 sounds a little weird coming from Someone who is so, you know, well versed in in industry that that deals with unions constantly, and very you know well compensated uh, uh, talent in them.
3: Yeah, I mean it, it's it's odd because like what we're, we're you try and engage with this subject in a kind of a nuanced way that allows in a, a few of the more sort of uncomfortable truths. I don't think the people who are very pro union actually do allow themselves to see sometimes. And we're trying to engage with it through the prism of a fairly clunky statement made by Strauss Zelnick, which perhaps, you know, but, well, there's not, no perhaps, it doesn't kind of acknowledge a lot of that nuance itself. So it's, it's a very difficult window onto this issue because it's just not like appropriate for that. But, but I think, you know, the, the point about the comparison to the movie industry is, is sound. It's just that the, a lot of those unions were formed at a time when the film, the, when the film business was very, very different. To the way it is now. Now, unions have led, in part, to those differences. But I think I, I would certainly need to understand a little bit more about the precise circumstances that the unions came out of. Like how much, how were people paid, how much control did the studios have over stars and so on. Well, all I know about it is that it was it was pretty draconian back then. And, and whether or not that's a, a decent comparison to the games business. I'm not quite sure. What I do know, actually, is that there's uh, been a recent crisis with the Writers' uh, Union in America, um, an outcome of which which is about the way that deals are packaged by, by agents and so on and so forth. Uh, the, the details are, are sort of fairly long and involved, but one of the outcomes of this is that some of the more prominent writers in Hollywood uh, said, let's make a stand, let's all fire our agents. And that caused a huge division in the writing community over there because for some people who don't make that much money, that's a really serious thing to do it's a lot easier for someone who's doing very well as a uh, as a writer to fire their agent but it's the kind of the impact it has lower down the level and whether or not that sort of disparity existed back when the unions formed in in Hollywood I don't know but I can't imagine that it did because it's the sort of the, it's it's a, it's a difficult one to judge because one of Zelnick's points is like you say Rebecca there are plenty of people with reason to be upset. What, what Zelnick's hinting towards is, is there enough collective will? Because the fact that there are a, a, a considerable, like a, a meaningful amount of people that are upset with their job conditions, there needs to be more than just a meaningful amount. Everybody else who isn't also needs to kind of be on side, don't they? And I think that's the question that, 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 that needs to be asked that maybe Zelnick didn't ask particularly well.
1: I think you need like a... Uh A majority of of the workforce to to form form your union but like a a lot of people I I think they're ambivalent about this still I don't think they've thought too too hard about it and if they are presented with like I don't think it has to be a slam dunk kind of situation um, before you can get before you can get a union like if people are actually just presented with it and kind of made to think about it they you know they might they might decide, like, okay, yeah, these, these things that do bother me about this right now, I'll, I'll vote to change it. Like, I'm not going to lead, I'm not going to organize, but when presented with, you know, the option, maybe I'll take it.
2: Well, yeah, the um, the latest survey from GDC, I believe, with the organizer of GDC, had uh, about 46% in favor of a union, or maybe a little bit higher, 48 something like that um 16 against and then just like an ocean of ambivalence in between um so i don't know what it takes for those people in between to actually like you know develop a concrete viewpoint whether it is kind of deciding to ally with people people who they recognize have have problems in their jobs that perhaps they don't have or maybe it's a case of they have to realize that they face a lot of those same problems too
0: Right, it definitely seemed because I went I went to one of the round tables um on unionization at GDC this year, and it definitely seemed like th- I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of different conversations going on there, but one of the big ones I think was. finding ways to talk to people who are ambivalent about about unions and helping them understand why they could like why they could still be beneficial like even even if you're relatively happy in in your job if you're paid well if you don't feel that there are any immediate pressing issues you're facing there are still things that a union can do for you is what is what they were trying to say um and and find find ways to communicate that message so i think I mean the, the industry the gaming industry that wants unionization they've they have their work cut out for them in the next couple of years to convince that big ambivalent group that this is actually something they want i it seems like we're inching closer to it year by year but it it, it, do, it does feel like inches at least right now
1: they're getting an assist from the publishers who seem to be you know every every month or two, Having mass layoffs, or we get another studio expose about crunch around Fortnite or Mortal Kombat 11 or whatever the big game of the moment is, and like I, I, I think that creates more of an awareness uh, uh, for people about you know the 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 fact that they just don't have much leverage or much control. Uh, in their in their employment situation right now and i've talked about this before for the for the site like the developers are right now represented by basically the igda which is not a union and which has been pretty ineffective in in most things that it is uh pursued it seems like it's a good Educational tool, it's a good networking resource for developers, but as far as an advocate for them, they need something with more teeth. And I, r- union, seemed just like the kind of the natural progression of that. And if 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 publishers don't spontaneously decide to change the way they do a lot of things, um, we're going to keep getting those episodes horror stories that and layoffs that wind up being recruitment ads for unions yeah i was going to say much the same thing but
3: you know stuff like telltale while you know it is an objectively awful situation for those involved that is the kind of thing that makes people who are other who are the people that zonic seems to be talking about right there they've got good money they're not they're not they don't have too many too many problems or issues or whatever but, but it just shows that things can go bad very very quickly and if it does where are where are you left and something like telltale can really push people towards joining that 46 percent that hayden hayden is talking about and maybe you don't need to go too much higher than that to get where you are to get to get where the industry needs to be to, to to take that extra step forward
1: the thing is as
2: well like it's very easy to think you don't need a union until you need one and at that point, it's kind of a bit too late. I mean, like, again, Telltale as an example, I feel like that was something which really helped reignite this debate, particularly um, outside the context of Crunch. Uh, because once, you know, nobody expected Telltale to go down, they seemed like a really successful company. It seemed like a ship that was staying afloat. And there are a lot of games companies that look like that on the surface and may look like that from within. But also, it's not impossible for something to just go horribly, horribly wrong um and then all of a sudden you've you know 300 people are unemployed
0: telltale's a really good example of that too because weren't they doing fine and then all of a sudden an investor pulled out and they're like oh wait we we just can't do it anymore because of that one investor is that right
2: yeah that's that's kind of the gist of it i mean the thing is like the fact that they were in that situation shows that they were really pushing things to to quite the the limit of acceptability anyway but yeah it was like they pinned a lot of their hopes on there, and there was mismanagement and stuff that led up to them having to pin their hopes on that thing. But then, yeah, one, one investor pulls out, and all of a sudden, everything is not fine anymore. Well, everything is apocalyptically bad.
3: Yeah, well, that's the key to it, right, is that that's what, that's what collective bargaining really, that, that's its utility, is that in a situation like Telltale, everything kind of turned and ultimately collapsed on the decisions and actions of a small handful of very powerful people at the company. And it left them at the mass in, in the shit, basically. Um, but the thing is, like, it's just how is the industry responding to this? That's the thing. Because this is a very, you know, I, I, I can understand that many CEOs probably really wouldn't want unionization to happen. And I think, as you said, Rebecca, and as you suggested, Brendan, like the, you know, re- really... The best thing for the industry to do, if they don't want if the people in the industry don't want unions, what they have to do is to try and address and get and 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 solve some of the concerns that are driving people in this direction. Because it's very very easy to just kind of trivialise this stuff, which I think is what most people are, 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 are believe that Zelnick was doing there. But then that leaves you completely unprepared for when the, the force is too great to resist anymore. I mean, it's it's something that we're seeing in in other parts of the industry and indeed something we're going to talk about a little bit later on the podcast.
1: There's one thing that I want to bring up in this, and it's an argument that people make against unionization, um, where they say that if you unionize, since it's going to be impossible to do it like spontaneously in every market around the world, um, then publishers will just outsource, you know, they'll put, they'll have people in, in cheaper countries or or cheaper, ununionized, uh, shops make their games. And while like, I don't have some great insight into this and I am, I'm fully, uh, believing that publishers would not really have any kind of moral objection to like, Oh, you're going to unionize. Well, then we'll just go to some people that don't demand to be treated better. Um, but it's it's sort of a scare tactic that I that I don't think really holds up in the long run because, like, there are there are talent bases where publishers go out of their way to operate there, even if it's pretty expensive. Like the games industry, the U.S. games industry, according to that same uh, report, the ESA report that Zelnick cited. Like, more than half of it, more than half of the people employed in that U.S. games industry are in California. And that's largely going to be in the Bay Area, in Los Angeles, uh, some in San Diego. And these are not cheap places to live. The developers who work there command pretty high salaries because they actually need them in order to to get by and despite that the industry has been pretty okay with uh centralizing so much of it in in these really expensive hotbeds because it attracts key talent these these cities and they really need that key talent to to produce the best games that they possibly can so i like i think i think people who who use that that Publishers will just go elsewhere argument are kind of underestimating um, how much publishers value the, the talent and experience that they currently have access to in some of these places.
2: A point counter to that would be uh, actually another thing from the Telltale collapse, which is that um, Telltale paid lower than industry average, and they were based in the Bay Area. Um, and that was another thing which they got dragged for uh, after it collapsed was, was the lower pay and yet still being in the most expensive city in the entire world. So I wonder if the games industry is just able to get away with paying people lower because there is that there's that passion, there's that love of video games that draws people, and they're willing to sacrifice a little more in order to work in it. And so unionization in, in the context of Telltale, like not to say that I think Telltale would necessarily move, but it, it does... It does kind of raise the question
3: but it's also a slightly uh, they does show to a, to, a, to a degree we're kind of like blinkered um, uh, about the way the games are made because that's already happened you know I, I'm pretty sure and I'm, I, I don't have the facts in front of me but I've visited Romania a few times and the majority of the people that make FIFA are in Romania they're not in Vancouver uh, it's exactly what you're saying Brendan there's a lot of very talented people in Vancouver and they form like the hub team, but the bulk of the work is done outside of the country. Now, you know, I don't think the danger is necessarily that EA goes elsewhere. I actually think it's that they work their non-unionised <laughs> workforce even harder. And you only need to look at the list of places that say a Ubisoft has studios to know that Ubisoft already has gone elsewhere. It already has very expensive teams in very expensive places, and then a lot of people working in not expensive places Producing assets and doing that kind of thing, and I've always been very interested in what what the crunch is like in those sorts of countries. Where and, I, and this is not just publishers on that size. There's lots and lots of companies that have these workforces in Southeast Asia. I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure Ubisoft has, has a studio out in Jakarta or somewhere like that. You know, and this this is this is very much a trend that's already happened. Um, and and it's just what 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 would the con- consequence of unionisation be? among developers in North America when they work for a company that can just work people that don't belong to that union all the harder. Um, it's, the games industry is global, and so there is a concern there, I think, I just don't think it's exactly that concern. Then the concern is EA moves out of North America. I think that EA is already out of North America, and just what does that mean for the rest of the workers across the world?
0: a lot of time so far talking about issues that are, at least at the moment, kind of specific to the US. Uh, let's jump over to the UK for you guys, uh, where some British MPs just had some uh, interesting conversations with reps from Epic Games and EA. Hayden, do you want to take this one?
2: <laughs> <laughs> sure. It's uh, it's hard to really know where to begin with this one, but... Um so it's, it's part of the ongoing inquiry into immersive and addictive technologies they've been speaking to academics influencers uh british game developers but yeah they actually bought over execs from epic and ea to discuss uh well, there was a lot of stuff about sort of corporate responsibility um and uh, sort of questions around like uh you know addictive gaming behaviors and what these companies are doing to ensure that like children aren't playing their games or aren't being groomed like on the on their platforms, and honestly, the industry response was was pretty lacking. Um, there is some. <laughs> there was one point where uh, the legal counsel for Epic tried to effectively deny that Epic makes money from video games which (laughs) was uh yeah a really curious stance to take there was there was another line which i actually didn't include in the article where he he effectively uh dismissed the world health organization's classification of gaming disorder um as a thing that essentially didn't exist um and it was, uh, yeah, it was it was quite a farcical display, honestly. And I, th- I think the MPs overall did did a reasonably good job of taking them to task, considering they're you know they're not industry experts. Um, but there was there were a few other things as well, uh, like EA have uh, attempted to rebrand loot boxes as surprise mechanics, which was quite a cringeworthy attempt at a rebrand. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have read the article as well, if you have kind of got any any thoughts on. Uh, on how it all actually went down but yeah my, my my general feeling is the industry didn't do a very good response uh one of one of the uh chair the, the chairman for the committee even went as far as saying that epics evasiveness around questions of uh sort of playtime and how much money the average player spends uh only aroused more suspicion uh because <laughs> they they hid behind this real wall of uh sort of like that's uh sort of sensitive information and so we can't share it uh, we can't can't share that information with our competitors, which is a pretty flimsy response, but I guess there's not much that can be done about that
1: that one in particular stood out for me just because uh, in the context of a government inquiry where people are talking about cracking down on loot boxes or pay to win mechanics or whatever, and you know politicians are asking you these questions, and you are not willing to tell them the answer to like how much people are actually playing your game. That suggests to me that you think stonewalling in front of these people who already kind of have control over your business, if they, if they want, um, the consequences of antagonizing them and just telling them, you know, we're not going to tell you anything. Jog on. Is that, is that the UK? Yeah. That's, that's, that's a (laughs) terminology. Just telling them jog on. Um, ea thinks that that those consequences are better than if they actually told them the real numbers and it reminded me of something that i that i bring up uh, a whole lot it was a uh, ea investor call where blake jorgensen the uh, cfo cfo i believe uh he's talking about He's talking about uh, what a great value is games are compared to movies and saying, like, people can play our games for 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 hours a year. And if you do the math on that, that's, you know, almost 14 hours of gaming every single day for the entire year. You know, you, you add your eight hours of sleep to that and... uh and that does not leave much time for an actual life outside of the game, and that's that's terrifying to me that's really yeah, really concerning
0: I, I think i i think it's it's really frustrating right because we've we've been seeing this going on a little bit in the u s too like kind of with with the e s a being sort of tight lipped on these questions as you know, we, we've seen more of a conversation coming up around loot boxes. There, are, there are governments that are actually stepping in and, you know, having have, having court he- court hearings or talking about, you know, is it gambling? Is it not? Like, it's it's becoming a thing. Uh, governments around the world are becoming more aware of these issues uh, with the who and the classification of gaming addiction. Um, these are issues that we have that we're going to have to deal with the industry is going to have to deal with them at some point it's not going to be tomorrow but it, it's not going to be this isn't like a, a decade long thing like that this is this is coming up here and it's really frustrating to see this happening where these these executives and these representatives are just they're just like woefully unprepared to deal with it like they don't they they're coming in and they they've decided that dodging questions and saying weird twisty nonsense like it's not accurate to say we made money off a game like 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 they somehow think that is a better response than just giving some information and coming together in some way to come up with a reasonable solution to these problems like like there are I, I really do believe that if at, at least in the U.S. with the ESA um, I don't really know how quite you know what what the equivalent situation would end up being in other countries um, but I really do believe that like if people would like talk about these issues candidly and you know kind of figure something out there there are ways to keep monetization practices profitable for games while also not like you know ex- exploiting addictive mechanics and you know luring children into buying thousands of, do- of dollars of loot boxes and things like that like like i think that i think that's a possible compromise that can be made but we're not going to make it because no one's willing to give anyone information that would enable them to make it but
3: it, it's the the most worrying thing about about it really <clears throat> uh, another site not hearts um wrote a report on this but but it took a very different view for we at least it, it saw the events differently um, and one of the key points he made was like the MPs were kind of stupid about games. But, you know, I, I, you've got to say that, I mean, because what you say, they, they seemed unprepared. And I thought the same, EA and Epic. But the truth Mary, is they did prepare. But they obviously prepared thinking that these answers would be good enough for the MP for, for, for the MPs questioning them. And that means actually the, the industry thought the MPs were a lot stupider than the MPs actually proved to be. Because, I mean, this, this, is, this is bullshit that they were talking. And they immediately got caught in it, and they had no recourse once that had happened. And it only, t- you know, there's 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 a lot of concern uh, across many countries in Europe around these issues with games. Whether you believe that that the, 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 these issues are valid or not is actually not the point. The point is that there will be governments around Europe that will be paying attention to what happened yesterday, and they will see. Well, you know, it looks a lot like arrogance on the part of the games industry. It looks a lot like insolence on the part of the games industry. And that is a really, really bad look when you have multiple governments in one of your biggest markets turning against you. Um, Epic and EA dropped the ball extremely badly. And it's why I was saying earlier about the unionization problem. It's, it's very easy to kind of, when you're in a position of power, to, to treat problems that might become very, very big problems for you as as, uh, as irrelevant when they're still when they seem still fairly small, but then there might come a point when these get too big to handle, and it's stuff like yesterday, and and the what EA and Epic evidently thought they could get away with saying. It's just it just defies common sense, you know. It's difficult to know how those two companies wound up in a place where they thought they could walk into that room and say what they said and walk out of it with everybody being pleased with the result
0: and talk about surprise mechanics there was no way that was going to get any kind of positive headline from anyone ever <laughs> surprise mechanics
3: Yeah, it? it's just a headline isn't it right there Come on, <laughs> here's, the, the here's the stick now beat, beat the hell out of this it. really, very strange
2: <laughs> here's the thing so one of the uh one of the well actually both the epic guys were accused of being evasive by one of the uh, committee members who actually even asked them if they'd received, uh, if they'd been coached on how to respond to the inquiry. Um, And they sort of responded quite loosely, like they were coached on sort of like Britain's like legal infrastructure or that sort of thing. But the fact that one of the MPs just saw it and just went, you are just you're evading our questions. You it feels like you've come in here with the intent of invading our questions and doing little else. Um and the amount of times that one of the MPs asking a question had to say to them, it's a yes or no question, just answer it. Like I lost track of it like after two hours. Like that that happened multiple times. Because yeah, very very straightforward questions were being asked were being answered in this very like sort of child caught with his hand in the cookie jar approach. It's like, well, you say cookie jar but how about you define cookie jar and it's like that's not the point like the point is we're very suspicious about your behavior and you're continuing to be very suspicious
3: yeah. I think it's inaccurate to categorize the receptacle as a cookie jar so afraid <laughs> Yeah, to... and and
2: my definition of a hand would definitely differ from your definition of a hand
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean it puts a lot of emphasis on what come, what's coming next week though right Hayden that there's more people that are kind of come up and be questioned one of them being the UK trade body, UK, I think King is up there as well, right? And yep, like these people King have got and... to walk into a much more hostile environment than than EA and Epic walked into, I would imagine, as a direct result of what happened.
2: Well, the thing is, if you watch, um, if you if you saw the previous proceedings, which were with British game developers, uh, including people from Rockstar North, and then a few sort of smaller developers and the and uh, uh, Dundee University. Ab- Ab- Abate. Abate, sorry, that's it. Um, they, uh, their response and their, their reception from the, from the MPs was much more sort of friendly because they were they were asking them questions about the British games industry, about game development, all sorts of things. And they were giving good, well-thought-out reason responses. And I understand these studios are in a very different position from where Epic and EA are because Epic and EA, you know, they're, they're being dragged in front of a firing squad because they're the ones that have attracted a lot of negative attention at the moment but in that situation the 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 solution isn't or the answer isn't to just try and duck and defend and deny it's to give well thought out reasoned answers um and I feel like next week's going to be an interesting one because King as you know Candy Crush developer and uh, a lot of concerns around mobile gaming uh but there's also people from the British Esports Association and I believe Tiger are going to be there as well or Tiger sorry um so it's it's going to be interesting to see how the how the MPs sort of viewpoint has changed in in that one week uh, dealing dealing with these these new uh, new speakers.
3: Mm, yeah, and and it's very much all of this. It's important to state because we have a, a readers in a lot of different countries and maybe even some of them are listening to this right now. But you know the UK is not alone in this sort of general sentiment being out there and directed at the games industry right now. We know it's kind of there's you know some negativity bubbling away in the US. We know that Belgium is there. We know that the Netherlands is there. There's definitely some of that sentiment in Germany. Like this is this is not an isolated incident, and these kinds of questions are going to be being asked. And the industry really does need to kind of get its act together. And I think we we've said this in a few articles on the site before. To actually, and and Brendan sort of acknowledged it in what he was saying about that Blake Jorgensen quote, the industry has kind of sold itself in ways over the years that directly implicate it in all of these things that are being questioned about now. It's really difficult to go into that room and pretend you absolutely have no idea what they're talking about when you literally do boast about the amount of hours your players play your games for. Um, When you do shout from the rooftops about how much money you're making from loot boxes. So This is not... These are not arguable points. The point is, we do have to acknowledge and and try and make up for some of that, some of that sort of overextension of the past. Now, whether or not we do that, I don't know. That's that's the question.
2: They also employed some pretty like outmoded defences when it came to questions around age verification. Um, so, Epic said that they don't verify the age of their players because you have to create a PlayStation account before, and so it's up to PlayStation as the storefront holder or as, as the platform holder. Um, which, like, that argument makes perfect sense in the in the days of physical retail, where, yeah, it was up to the people selling the game to make sure that the game wasn't sold to someone underage, but it's a very, very different prospect now when just anyone can, you know... you don't, Although legally you have to be 18 to start a PlayStation account, I don't see what's stopping you from starting one at a younger age. Like, I'm not sure how thorough these... These systems in place are, and but people Hayden, are... it
0: asks you, doesn't it? Like, you can't <laughs> because, lie.
2: Well, yeah, it's very difficult to lie to uh to one of those things you put your date of birth into. Um, but it's like, yeah, you know it, that re- that responsibility does currently lie with PlayStation. But I also feel like if you're putting something on the PlayStation Store, like you know, you are aware that people underage are playing your game, and you've not done anything, you've, you've not thought about that maybe being a problem in any context.
3: The, the, to say that they don't have access to any data, I mean, like i i played enough EA games to know that you can have an EA account. I know that you can have a Fortnite account. That They have this information. There's no two ways about it. Every single major publisher has their own kind of sort of over-the-top sort of service that they try and provide for people. So they whether or not they, that entirely applies to, to the age rating on games, at the very least, the tools are there to do something about it
2: to be fair to EA, they were able to verify people's ages. Um, It it was just Epic that were getting dragged on this. Although Epic were getting dragged on everything, they had a much, much tougher time than EA. And I think that's because they were immediately sort of picked out as the most evasive and the most suspicious. And so the, the MPs kind of honed in on that quite quickly
0: i think that's all the time we have for today uh you can always go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast on all good podcasting platforms and you can and totally should get your daily dose of news and insight into the world behind games at gamesindustry.biz